Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. chapter 6, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We're going to read verses uh, 9 through 11 here in just a moment. I'll give you a chance to turn there. First Corinthians 6, <clears throat> let's read 9 through 11. We're going to turn to a, uh, an assortment of passages, uh, spend some time working through the Bible, but this will be kind of the place that our, our starting point and where we will return uh, to investigate and see uh, what we're looking at this morning. So 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, please follow along with me. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we come, we bow ourselves before you and we ask, please feed us from your word. Please give us instruction. Lead us, oh Lord, by your spirit that we will understand, that we will see the significance. And then Lord, that you will lead us to be transformed, lead us to have hearts intent on obedience. God, you've, you've put us in this lost dark world, saved us out of it, and now have given us the commissioning to go and to speak your word, to share your gospel, to shine as lights, to boldly and unapologetically declare your gospel, declare your truths, and show that you are glorious. Lord, this is one particular area that we need to, be, we need to do this in a faithful way in order to show your glory, in order to be faithful witnesses, to draw people to Christ. So we pray, O oh God, give us understanding, give us obedience, but also, Lord, give us holy boldness. Give us loving, humble winsomeness as we speak to the world around us, O oh Lord, to hold up your truths and show the light. So, Lord, we pray, come to us, help us, Lord. For your sons and daughters who have trusted in Christ in this room, God, I pray, um, lead us, grow us, help us, sanctify us, send us out as workers. And Lord, any in the room that has not trusted in Christ for salvation, God, I pray that you will draw them to yourself. Please help us in what's going to happen here. Capture our attention, capture our affection, remove distractions. Help me in the work of preaching. Help all of us in this uh, time of worship and receiving and responding to your word, O oh God. We love you and pray this through Christ. I ask all of it in his name. Amen. Uh, last week, uh, a law was passed in Canada making it illegal to speak words to take certain words, form them into sentences which call those who practice homosexuality or are experiencing gender confusion, to call them to turn from their sin and come receive forgiveness in Christ. It became illegal to speak words. So what did faithful pastors and churches in Canada decide? They decided that today, this Lord's Day, throughout Canada, they were going to stand, defy the king, and herald the words of Christ. This morning we join them. 
This morning, we decide to stand with them across the nation uh, in the United States. Uh, pastors, churches are doing this very thing as a way of standing with brothers and sisters who have chosen a hard thing, who have chosen to risk for the sake of Christ. Um, Hebrews 13.3 uh, speaks of those who had been arrested for their faith in Christ and uh, addresses the rest of the church. And it says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea, we are to remember, remember in our sympathy, remember in our prayers, Remember in actions that we could do that might be a help to them in some way. Our brothers and sisters in Canada have chosen a difficult thing. Some will be arrested. Some will be fined. They count the cost. They're willingly obeying Christ. We want to stand with them. But lest we misunderstand ourselves, this is needed in our age and our day and in our place. See, part of the church's responsibility, we, we're, we're called in scripture the pillar and support of the truth. We are given this task to herald the word of God and we're, we're told to preach the whole counsel of God, but there is a way that specifically we must engage and we must speak to the sins of our day. If we preach the entire Bible except those very places that we would get some pushback from the world, but we tried to feel good about ourselves because we preached against sin, like some of the sins that people are worried about, we're missing the boat there. Part of what we must do, part of our task is to address the very sins of our day and to show the truth of the word of God. And if we, the church, do not continue to boldly declare these things, where we live, we will find similar kinds of laws on our very doorsteps. West Lafayette, Indiana. Indiana is considering a simil similar law in their city limits. The authorities there in that city are trying. They have not succeeded yet, but they are trying to pass a law that would make what they call conversion therapy to be illegal. Conversion therapy would just simply be what we would refer to as repentance. Someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction or gender confusion voluntarily seeks help and visits a biblical counselor who helps them to leave their sin and come to healthy sexual desire. It's crazy that in America and Indiana, of all places... There's considering the outlawing of the use of words and forming sentences, the need for the church to boldly and humbly, lovingly and winsomely, but unapologetically speak and declare the truth of God and the glory of God in his design may have never been more critical. So what I'm intending to do this morning is to preach um, kind of a topical sermon. In one sense, what I'm going to do is kind of work us through a biblical theology of how we formulate our understanding uh, of sexuality from the Word of God and then address two points of application. So the first point I'm going to look at, I'm calling it principles of creation. And then I'm going to speak a word of application and appeal to the unbeliever and then a word to the Christian. We'll spend most of our time in the first point here. And so here it is, principles of creation. Where do we get our information about biblical sexuality? Where do we turn in the Bible? A couple years back, I was, I was kind of disappointed by some things that happened in a Christian family. There was a, a member of the, the Christian family who came out as homosexual and the rest of the family tried to talk to her, to talk her out of this and to follow Christ. And she responded to them by saying, but does the Bible even really say that? And they wrote to me to ask, does it? Does the Bible actually get specific and say that? And if so, where? <laughs> I was obviously disappointed that they didn't know the answers to these questions. 
So what I want to do is briefly walk with you, th walk through with you how we formulate biblical worldview um, and, and kind of model how we would do this in a, in a lot of different areas, not only this one, but how do we formulate this? Well, we begin where we always begin with worldview matters back in Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is where we begin with everything. God created and he created out of nothing, meaning he didn't borrow someone else's material or someone else's design. He wasn't uh, trying to take something someone else did and then repackage it completely out of nothing he created. He created it all. He owns it all. He owns it all. He has the right to rule, the right to govern, the right to direct, the right to give commands. It's his story. He wrote it. It's his design. He planned it down to the smallest atoms and down to the tiniest nerve endings on your body and why your body is made the way that it is. The first critical component, component of worldview in general is where did I come from? Okay, how you answer that will determine a thousand other areas of your thinking. But if you'll look back to Genesis 1 with me, I'll kind of walk you through some of the story here. Back in Genesis 1, I read to you verse 1. If you look to verses 26 to 31 there in chapter 1, look what happens here. In verse 26, we're told that uh, mankind was made in the image of God, male and female. He created them. God goes on in verse 28 to give them a commissioning, to give them their purpose. Go forth and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Go have babies, go build, go make cities, go work. Uh, and then jump to chapter two there and uh, find the section in verse 18. Chapter 2, 18 to 25. I want to read it quickly just because I'm rolling through everything quickly today. But follow along with me there. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed that's one of those passages from scripture that just volumes uh, of truth could be written of all that comes out of here. But let me just in kind of quick succession, rattle off some of the principles that we find there. And I'm doing this to kind of uh, show and model how it is that God has revealed truth in scripture. God made mankind in his own image, gave him a higher rank. Uh, gave male and female a sacredness to their lives that animals do not possess and an expectation to live as holy as God is holy. In verse 18, God said it's not good for the, the man, the male, to be alone. We see that God created the man first and then created woman second. God created man for a task, a work, a mission. And he created woman to be his wife, to be a helper to him in this. Down in verse 21, we see this uh, point made that woman was created out of man. He created Eve out of his side. We've made points in the past, not out of his foot and not out of his head, but out of his side. In verse 23, Adam was given the task of naming creation. This was part of his commission from God. This was part of his authority that he was given, and, but that included naming woman. Adam said, she shall be called woman 
because she was taken out of man. So you can hear the word man in the word for woman. Uh, our English language has kept intact here something that happens in the uh, original language. In Hebrew, it's ish and isha. She shall be called isha because she was taken out of ish. Now, if you're paying attention to the, the, the public conversation that's happening, and this is happening big time in places like Canada that is reaching full conclusions of feminism, they're trying to remove from their vocabulary any reference whatsoever to man in, in description of humanity and mankind. You notice that even in their language, there is a rebellion against the created order. God said that it was not good for man to be alone. And so God made for Adam a help meet, a complimenting companion. Compliment, not like telling somebody you look good today, not a compliment, a compliment, like fitting together compliment. God did not make for Adam another man. God did not make for Adam two wives. We hear some of these principles and you could say, oh, okay, yeah, that's what happened. But does that prove anything? Does that give a command of any sort? Well, I'm jumping ahead a bit to something we're going to say in the New Testament section. But you, you do need to know that repeatedly in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles point us back to creation when questions are asked and when points are made about marriage, sexuality, male and female, were pointed back to creation and said, have you not read? Here's what God established. And so God did intend this to set the pattern. In verse 24, God brought the woman to Adam and God brought to creation at that point, marriage and sex animals mate, man and wife joined, to joined together in the one flesh union. Marriage by nature is a sexual relationship. Marriage is not simply a relationship where sex is allowed. No, by nature, it is a sexual relationship. The one flesh union is a one flesh intimacy of physical joining together. Uh, and then one last thing I'll point out from Genesis 2, there are so many more things that could be said. We're going to see Jesus make some more points and principles, by the way, from Genesis 2. But the last one I'll point out for right now is all of this that we've talked about so far, the, the creation of man, the creation of woman, the establishment of marriage, the creation of sex, the creation of intimacy, the order of marriage, the complementing relationship of authority and submission, the prescription for the ongoing creation of more families. All of this is pre-fall. This is before the curse, which means that every part of this thus far, there's not one part of it that is a result of the curse. All of this was called by God very good. Another way we might describe that is uh, glorious. It's beautiful, harmonious, filled with order that is there. The family is the first and most basic institution. The family precedes the church. The family precedes government. God has given family purpose and authority that may not be overridden by other authorities. Next, as we continue uh, walking through, uh, jump to the law with me. Go, go to Exodus chapter 20, if you will. In Exodus... <clears throat> Starting in chapter 20, we have this section where God gives the law at Sinai and the beginning of the law is the Ten Commandments there. And if you see in verse 14, you see the seventh commandment, which reads, you shall not commit adultery. Now, remember that even just last week, uh, I told you this about reading the Ten Commandments. There are at least three things happening in every one of the Ten Commandments. There is instruction teaching that is happening about God and his creation. Secondly, there are prohibitions 
And then thirdly, there are imperatives. There are orders, okay? Uh, and this is the case as well with the seventh commandment. It can seem really simple. You shall not commit adultery, but understand there's a lot more being preached here. Ten commandments aren't all of the law, but it is the great summary of the law. There's a lot happening and being communicated by one simple command. For instance, there's such a thing as sexual sin. Now, one of the big light bulb moments I had as being a preacher along the way was we have to say the really basic things. We have to. I never would have dreamed as a kid and as a new Christian that the day would come that we needed to address men are men and women are women. We have to say the absolute most basic kinds of principles, okay? So here is one of those. There is such a thing as sexual sin. It's not anything goes. It's not my body, my choice. It's not do as you please. It's not the body's going to die, so you'll perish, so who cares what happens to it? No, there's such a thing as sexual sin. And in the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment there, D demands that we not covet as well. And one of the specific things that is addressed is not to covet in a sexual way. Coveting would, uh, would speak to any kind of desire that is errant. And one of those that specifically mentioned is uh, sexual lust. Now, later in the law, there's a lot to cover, okay? So more than we can do now. We just came out of a 10-part series on Wednesday nights working through the law. I spent weeks uh, addressing just a portion of it, addressing sexual sin. So there's more than we could cover right here. But if I could take you maybe just one place that would show an example, Exodus 22. Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17. I'll use this to make kind of a couple points Exodus 22, 16, if a man seduces a virgin, think boyfriend and girlfriend there, who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. Okay, if a boyfriend convinces a girlfriend to sleep with her, one of the things that the law of God says is he owes her to be her husband, he, which involves providing for her, protecting her, leading her, giving her children, being a father to those children. It is a shameful thing for a man to take sex from a woman, but then not join with her in covenant. It's a shameful thing for him to seduce her, but then not be willing to be a husband to her and all that it means. Now, remember what we said in that series for you who come on Wednesday nights. Remember what we said in that series about sections of the law where God gives case law, civil law. In sections like this, verses 16 and 17, that's not the glorious heights of morality. That's not the highest places of ethical excellence. There are sections of the law that just give case law in terms of, of what it takes for society to function without collapse. Okay? So, so part of what I mean is, you know, husbands, if you, you know, in a, uh, just a regular kind of disagreement with your wife, get angry and, and yell at her, have you sinned? Yes. Have you broken the law? Like, is there a criminal punishment? Okay, no. So, so what are those parts of the law, civil law, what is it? It's like bare minimums, okay? You could cross a line and break the law, okay? But there are bare minimums in place. There are sections of the law that give that kind of thing. It's not the glorious heights of morality. It's the bare minimums for society to function without collapse. And throughout Exodus 22, 21, 22, and 23, we have some of that case law, civil law that is there. And in some of those sections, the law speaks to other kinds of sexual sin. Now bear in mind, God shows, I mean, like these are kind of bare minimums and God gave punishments for these kinds of things. And when we were on Wednesday nights, we addressed some of these things such as rape, which could be punished by death depending on the circumstances, homosexuality, men dressing as women, women dressing as men. By the way, that's not new. 
Like, don't think that this is a new kind of thing in history. No, this has been around for thousands of years. This is part of the fall. God addresses things like bestiality and incest, and then even some just general instruction that that shows this. We could sum up a lot of it by saying this. Do not do that which is contrary uh, to nature. God has given a design. God has given a design. There is a beautiful pattern that God set to break from the pattern, to corrupt it, twist it, distort it, pervert it. To break from the pattern is to engage in evil. Remember this other part of the law that we mentioned. The Lord your God makes a distinction between the clean and the unclean. That very simple principle is is needed. So when the world uses a slogan that sometimes trips up Christians of something like, you know, hey, love is love, can take all kinds of different forms. Or a cliche like, you can't help who you love, those kinds of things. We need to understand, all of these are ways of rebelling against God's order. When we look at, you know, some of these various kinds of sexual sins, you know, and we ask the question, you know, why are they wrong? You know, is it that God just sort of randomly said, you know, just in this creation, we're just going to make this wrong. Bestiality, we're just going to call it wrong. No, there's a reason for it. Okay, it's a break from the pattern. It's a break from the order. By the way, um, as I mentioned some of the awkward and uncomfortable things, okay, um, that are here, I get it that there could be the thought, do we really need to talk about it? Okay, Um, pastoral counseling has led me to say, Everything. Those things that you think, no, everything has to be addressed. This is a fallen world. This is a cursed world, broken and undone. We are looking for the redemption that is in Christ, and it is not here yet. And in a fallen world, you get illogical, vile desires, and any break from the pattern is what constitutes evil. Now, concerning the law, it is an objection that the world raises against the church from time to time. You Christians are hypocrites. You quote the Old Testament, you know, uh, and the same Old Testament law tells you not to eat pork and shellfish, and yet you do that. You're just picking and choosing what you like. So is that legitimate? Okay, well, this is one of the reasons why we just spent, you know, a 10-part series working through the law. It was one of the things we wanted to look at. What we saw is... All of the law still preaches truth in every single part, okay? It's still relevant to the Christian in some way, but it is the case that not all of the law, the Old Testament law, has been carried into the new covenant law of Christ, like the dietary restrictions, okay? So there is some interpretation that is involved in these things. But what what we see happen in the New Testament is the New Testament constantly is referring us back to the Old Testament as the basement that the house, the new covenant house was built on, referring us back to the principles of the Old Testament creation and the law and saying, have you not read? Have you not read? Look at this principle. And one of the things that we see is the sexual morality It is a section that is a part of the new covenant law of Christ. And we see it all throughout the New Testament in references. I'll come back to that some more for a bit of clarity in a bit. Next, working through the Bible. Come to the book of Proverbs with me. In Proverbs, what we have, it addresses marriage, sex, intimacy, and we are instructed and warned. Now now watch this for wisdom's sake. So in other words, it's a different genre of literature. The book of Proverbs is not just law saying thou shalt and thou shalt not. Proverbs is, here's here's the picture of Proverbs, wisdom calls in the street. Come, come have beauty, come have order. Don't you want good for yourself? When you stand before God at judgment, don't you want to fare well for your own joy's sake? That's constantly what the book of Proverbs is doing. For wisdom's sake, it appeals to us. And so Proverbs 6, for wisdom's sake, 
don't take fire into your bosom because you will be burned. You cannot take fire to your body and hug it and not be burned. And it is addressing sexual sin in that section, but it also gives um, uh, joyful and delightful exhortations. So it's not just like avoid the sin, but it's also walk in the joy and glory of what God has made. So Proverbs 5, find verse 15. Let's read a little section there. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. You have to learn how to read poetry, okay? This is referring to sexuality, okay? Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated, literal language, be intoxicated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Next, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, again, another genre of literature. It's not law and it's not Proverbs. It is poetry. It's beautiful poetry. Um, as I've mentioned in the past, one of those books of the Bible, if you've never read the Bible before, will surprise you what is in there, okay? It is celebrating God's glory in this design. God's glory displayed in marriage sexual intimacy, the exhilaration that God wants there to be in marriage. It is rejoiced in. God is not anti-pleasure, okay? Your nerve endings exist because your creator made them, okay? Sexual intimacy uh, can be exhilarating because your creator designed it this way and wants you to walk in this. Song of Solomon shows that it is to be rejoiced in. What happens in Song of Solomon is you're not given any commands, okay? And so it's not like a go and do likewise or thou shalts and thou shalt nots. What is it? It's poetry, we're supposed to be drawn in by the beauty and something awakened within us. I want to walk in this beautiful kind of way. An entire book of the Bible devoted to the glory of God displayed in the exhilaration of sexual intimacy. Uh, next, Old Testament prophets. In the prophets, God addressed Israel and Judah's rampant sin of all different kinds. He addressed their idolatry. He addressed their injustice. He addressed their neglect of the poor. And another one of those that he addressed was their sexual sin and told them that judgment came upon them because of this. But now we transition to the New Testament. And while we could look at a dozen passages of the New Testament, I'll just kind of point out a, a few to you. If you'll jump to Matthew 19 with me. Matthew 19 would be kind of an example of a way that we see Jesus teach on this subject. Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question about marriage, and we're going to see uh, some of his reply there. Start in verse 4, Matthew 19, 4. And he, it's Jesus, Jesus answered and said, have you not read? Okay, there's that phrase. Have you not read? And then where does he go? Creation. Have you not read? Okay, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus takes Genesis 2 and brings more principles out of it and preaches and kind of says, you guys should know this. You should know this. Have you not Read. Jesus used that line often and points to creation. Jesus shows that what God did at creation was meant to serve as the pattern of his glorious design and that breaking from it constituted a corruption of his creation. That is a huge principle. And by the way, in other places, like Matthew 12, Jesus says, have you not read? And he brings them to the law. Okay, he brought them to the law of Sinai. Okay, so don't just always be saying it's in the Old Testament. You got to disregard it. Not at all, okay? He points them to the law, okay? 
Another principle to help your study of scripture in general is throughout the New Testament letters, a great deal of what the apostles are doing as they wrote the New Testament scriptures is they're taking the teachings of Jesus and further explaining them. So Jesus might say two sentences and Paul will spend three chapters unpacking and further explaining those two sentences there, okay? And so we see the apostles imitate Jesus constantly in this. So in places like 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking about male and female design and function in the church and why things are the way they are. And he brings us back to creation. He brings us back to creation. When the, when the, the question comes up in First and Second Timothy, why are the church's leaders, why is it God's design that they be men? Why are the overseers to be men? He brings us back to creation, the design and the principles that God established there. Well, then that brings us back to the passage where we began. First Corinthians six, if you'll go back. First Corinthians six and look at it again. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not deceive yourselves. Why does he say that? Because you can be deceived. And Baptists can be deceived with the whole once saved, always saved kind of misunderstandings that can come from it. It is true, once truly saved, always saved. But there are misunderstandings that can come. Do not deceive yourselves. If you are living in unrighteousness, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And then he mentions 10... And here's a critical description here. Ongoing, unrepentant kinds of sins. He mentions 10 examples of the kinds of unrepentant sins that are kept in one's life that would be living in rebellion to God. Now, we need to clarify, this is not preaching a works-based salvation. Okay, like if you remove these bad things from your life, you make yourself good enough to go to heaven. No, no, no. This book has already said in chapter one, we are saved by faith. And it's going to say even clearer in chapter 15, we are saved by faith and not by works. When you look at nine through 11, a little bit more carefully, we see how it all works out. And it's actually beautiful. Okay. So he says in verse 11, those hope filled words to Christians such were some of you. Meaning, if you are in Christ, you had sins in your life that used to be there and now they're not. And maybe some of them were some of these on this list of 10 things that he mentions here. That you had things in your life that are now gone. And then how does he, what does he say is the reason now that they're gone? But you were washed, that you were sanctified, that you are justified. What he does is he works backwards. See, watch this. You Christian, you who are in Christ, if you've been saved for three days, you've made some progress, okay? There are, there are some things that used to be in your life and they're not there anymore. Why did you get rid of them? Well, the first and immediate answer might be something along the lines of, well, I mean, I, I felt guilty about it. I, I'm gonna you know, follow Christ, I gotta, I gotta get this out of my life. Here, here's the way that Ephesians 5 would describe that. You were washed with the water of the word. So washed in that sense is not referring to the initial forgiveness. Washed in that sense is referring to cleaning the sin out of your life, getting rid of it practically. Okay, why did you feel guilty about those things? Why did you want to obey God? The Bible would say that's the spirit working in you. The word is have the word of God is having effect in your life. So you used to have sins that are now gone. Why are they gone? You were washed. Why were you washed? Because you were sanctified. You were set apart unto God. God set you apart and said, I am going to work in that man, in that woman's life. Why were you sanctified? Because you were justified. Justification is that moment where you are made right with God by faith in Christ. So by faith in Christ, you are forgiven of your sins and counted right. You are then sanctified, set apart unto God. We know there's a process, but there's also a moment. And then he is continually washing you. And so what this means is critical, guys. Okay. 
If there is someone claiming to be a Christian who is living in ongoing, unrepentant unrighteousness like these things right here, what the Bible would say is they're not being washed. Not being washed because they've not been sanctified. They've not been sanctified because they've not been justified. So it's not works-based salvation. It is those who are truly converted, they will have change in their lives. It's the guarantee. But if you notice here, in this list of 10 things, four of the sins mentioned are sexual sins. You notice that he mentions their fornicator. So fornication would be sexual activity before joining in covenant of marriage. Adulterers there, that is when at least one of the participants uh, is married or betrothed. Nor effeminate, okay, I'm going to try not to be too graphic here, but you do need to know the Bible is a bit graphic here. Okay. The word effeminate here is referring to a male homosexual relationship, the passive partner, and then homosexuals. That's what the word is directing there. So four of the sins that are mentioned here are sexual in nature. So notice that not the whole list is sexual. It's not everything. Okay. But four of them are. It is a big deal. Sexuality is a big part of how God made humans. God created an order, and this order shows his glory, and we are called to live accordingly. To break from the pattern is a distortion of God's design, and it is evil. Well, now, secondly, let me make an appeal to any who are unbelieving, and you are hearing me right now. If you are not a Christian, and in the sins that you have in your life, maybe some of them are sexual in nature, and there's all kinds of them. You know, one of the messages that we Christians want to say to you is, we do not hate you. We disagree with you, but we do not hate you. You know, every loving Christian that I know of has tons of people in our lives that we disagree with, like my wife from time to time. Okay, to disagree is not to hate. We do not hate you. In fact, we have care for your soul. We, we, we want good for you. The, the reason why we speak, the reason why we appeal to you, okay, is because we want God to be glorified. We want to honor him in this, but we also have care for your soul. We care about you enough to say some things, you, you need to recognize they are a risk to us. Okay, it costs us to say some of the things that we say. It costs us. There's shame from the world that we receive because we hold some of the views. And, and you need to legitimately consider that love, true love, is not pretending like everything is okay and fine when it is not. Love does what is best for people. We care about you. We have a love for you in that we're willing to tell you what is true even when it is inconvenient. We tell you that you need what we have all needed. What we need is Christ. Every single one of us, whatever sins we had in our lives, we need forgiveness before God. We're all sinners who have broken the law of God. God is a good and just judge. He's going to punish law-breaking, okay? Hell is not a joke. It is real. It is not mean or cruel of God that he's going to punish what is evil. And God tells us what is evil. We don't get to decide what is evil. God determines what this is. On our own, we are separated from God. But God in love sent his son. Jesus died in the place of sinners who will come to him. And now God gives you an invitation. Come and get grace. Come and receive forgiveness of sins. Come and be cleansed. Come and have eternal life. Place your faith in Jesus. This is how we receive this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Believe Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Believe every word that Jesus said. Trust Jesus, not trust yourself. 
not trust in any other kind of idea. Don't trust any religion that the religion itself gets you into heaven. You trust Jesus. You look to him personally, come and call out to him. But you need to know that turning to Jesus demands a turning away from everything that is rebellious and a submission to his rule. And it could be that at that point you say, well, I mean, I don't think that I am in sin. I was born this way. Or I've had these desires from as long as I can remember. This is how God made me and God doesn't make mistakes. We've all probably heard those kinds of lines. Well, you need to know that that idea that this is how God made me and therefore I must be perfect and I must live out my truth, that kind of thing, that does not come from the Bible. The Bible actually says the exact opposite. God made us uh, in, in, a, uh, in his image, but then we corrupted that by the fall. And now all who are born in Adam, this is Romans 5 if you wanna read it on your own, all who are born in Adam, we are born with distorted desires. Every person in this room was born with desires that are out of order, that are errant. And if we're being honest and consistent, we don't say to people who may have been born and from as long as they can remember had, had a lot of anger within them, sinful kinds of anger, we don't say it's not your fault and you can't help it and you just ought to live your truth out and let them live in that anger. We don't say that about other kinds of sin. But for some reason, when it comes to sexuality, a lot of times this idea gets introduced of the, the, the world saying things like you can't help it. And so what God tells you is the desires are errant. Every one of us are born with desires that seem very natural, but they are out of order. They are sinful. When you hear the language of be yourself, it might sound nice. It might even sound spiritual. It's actually opposed to the Bible, okay? Be yourself is an opposite message of what God tells us, repent, which means to turn from our sin. And some of those are ways that feel very natural to us. Turn to Christ. Repentance is to leave sin. It's to do the U-turn, to resolve in your heart, to turn to him. You must be saved. Hell is not a joke. It is real. We plead with you. Come get mercy. Come have a, a right relationship with God and eternal life. And then lastly, I want to speak a word to you, Christian. Christian, um, I, I have a, a, just a, a deep burden to plead with you and, and to give some warnings. This very week, this very week, I have grieved and grieved deeply over some Christian friends who fell in their marriage. If statistics hold true, I don't want these statistics to be true, but if they hold true, one quarter of the marriages in this church family will end in divorce. If the statistics hold true, 10 years from now, Someone in this church that you think would never do this will fall in some scandalous sexual sin. 10 years from now, some marriage in, in this church family that you think is fine, even in that short little span, will end. And there was a day they thought they could never that could never happen. And a great deal of it links to negligence, laziness in regard to marital strength, laziness in regard to sexual intimacy, and a laziness when it comes to dying to the little sins. Little sins that don't stay little. See, here's what it's easy to do as Christians. There can be a way that it's easy to make sure we talk about big and obvious kinds of sins, you know, the kinds that we don't really feel tempted to you know, right now, and, and to maybe even feel a little puffed up. It's possible to get self-righteous. Yeah, you preach, pastor. You preach against those people out there. 
and us not address the kinds of sexual sins or, or sins that are related to sexual intimacy, I'd, I'd submit to you that even things like bitterness, it's related to your sexual intimacy because it destroys your marriage, okay? And us not talk about the kinds of sins that Christians regularly do fall to and these lesser sins build up and build up and destroy marriages. It's actually become taboo to even mention in certain, you know, respectable Christian circles, some of the very sins that the Bible preaches against. Okay, can, can, can you imagine some of the Bible, the respectable Bible studies and some of the chandelier churches, the sin of sexless marriages being preached against? Or how often is the sin of depriving your spouse of their conjugal rights, that's biblical language, preached against? Which realistically, this is stuff that destroys Christian and Christian marriages. Part of what I'm appealing, Christian, resist the temptation to think that because I don't have some big scandalous and obvious sexual sin in my life that now I'm good. Till the day you die, till the day you die, don't stop battling your sin. Till the day you die, don't stop building the strength of your marriage. If you are single, you must guard yourself until, until God puts you uh, in a relationship or, or till you die, whatever his will is there. You are living in a sex-crazed culture. You are not going to be sexually pure unless it becomes a big goal for your life that you put real effort into. Okay, you know, and I just want to submit to you, um, husbands and wives, you're living in a sex crazed culture. You're not going to remain faithful unless you make it a big goal to do so and you put effort into this. These lesser sins, and, and, and yes, okay, so, so there are sins that are less heinous than adulterous, presumptuous sins. This is the case. But the problem is, is that lesser sins never stay lesser. Sin is never staying in the same place. It is always in motion. It is either strengthening or being battled and therefore decreasing. John Owen said, you be killing sin or sin be killing you. That's not just a slogan for a t-shirt. It's the way the body works. Sin is always to be fought, battled tooth and nail with blood, or it will be growing because it is never staying content in one place. Men in this church who are looking at pornography. And I'm not saying if, because the statistics are telling us it is happening. You men who are looking at pornography, you are being burned. You cannot take fire into your bosom and not be burned. You are being burned. It is changing you. It's distorting how you think. It is changing how you look at your wife. It is changing your expectations. It is dementing you. It is making you narcissistic. It is making you view your wife like an object and not as a beloved. It is burning you. And don't you think that it is possible to continuously do this and not eventually act on it? That's not possible. That's the way the body works. You indulge anything, it becomes a monster. Any lust. And today we're talking about this one. And parents, I plead with you, if you are giving your teenagers, and particularly teenage boys, if you are giving them unrestricted access to phones, tablets, computers, you have already signed their registration forms for hell. You are, you are putting them in danger and they are gonna fall into a slavery that they on their own cannot come out of. Do not assume that because you are a Christian and right now the thought of adultery makes you sick to your stomach that you will still feel that way five years from now automatically. Because this is the way that Satan works. This is the way that he seduces people. He will wear you down. He will change your thinking. You, you have a gag reflex spiritually. Adultery might make you sick to your stomach. It's got that gag reflex. He'll wear that reflex down. One, um, one TV show at a time. 
one worldly song at a time, one racy novel at a time, one fantasy thought about another person at a time. He'll numb that gag reflex. He'll wear you down. He is happy to take 20 years to lay a trap. He'll wear you down. And then and only then is the first opportunity presented. Oh, the stories that I could tell from biblical counseling. The thought of divorce might make you sick to your stomach and in your mind right now, you think that could never happen. Do not automatically assume that it will be that way five years from now and you'll still think the same way, okay? For you to keep the gag reflex working as it should, you have to put effort into that. For you to keep that yuck revolt in you that despises it, you have to do spiritual work to keep that and you have to fight off the flesh. And where it starts is in the heart. It's in the thinking. It's where nobody else knows but God. So Christian, you who are married, husbands and wives, chase the foxes out of the garden. That's language from Song of Solomon. Your marriage, your sexual intimacy, it's like a garden. Make it flourish. Water it. Tend it. Husband it and chase out the vermin. 1 Corinthians 7, which by the way, commands husbands and wives to join together uh, in sexual intimacy regularly, tells us that your greatest guard that you have for not falling sexually is healthy sexual intimacy within marriage. As the sexual intimacy in the marriage goes, okay, so, so goes the health and the strength. I can't tell you how many times in conversation or maybe in official counseling, uh, a Christian husband or wife has come to me and said something like, look, pastor, I know that sex doesn't matter, but, and I stop them right there. And I say, where did you get that idea? And a lot of times you can see the light bulb come on. This is counterfeit Christianity that is not from the Bible. Your marriage is a garden. Tend it. Strengthen it. Make it flourish. Die to every sin. That bitterness that you feel in your heart towards your spouse, make it die by the time you go to bed at night. The New Testament commands husbands not to be embittered towards their wives. There's a reason why that command is given. It's because it's a temptation to husbands. Ephesians commands us not to let the sun go down on our anger. Romans tells us not to let the devil gain a foothold. Do not let the smallest root of bitterness stay or the bitterness will grow. Believe the gospel. Christian, actually believe Believe every part of the word of God, numerous, numerous Christian marriages and Christian marriages can trace the, 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 some of the root of why destruction came into their marriage because of a refusal to believe even single truths from the Bible. Because occasionally that's one there where someone says, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I don't believe that. You know, I believe the Bible, but not that. That grows. One place of rebellion against the word of God, and it will grow into more and more. It will snowball down through the years. If I had more time, I'd like to develop the thought that some of the more subtle views of feminism, okay, have made major inroads into the church. And I mean Bible-believing churches, and I mean Bible-believing Christians. Not the big and obvious ones, because we see that from a mile away, okay? I'm talking some of the more subtle ideas of feminism, and this will come into your marriage, and it will destroy you. You submit every belief to the Word of God. By God's design... Humans are sexual creatures. If you are single, if you are single, one of the major ways that you are to live unto God is to guard yourself. It is in regard to your sexuality. It is to be chaste. If you are a youth, this is one of your major battles. This is one of God's tests for your life. Make the solemn commitment that you will refrain from sex until you are married. Don't feed those desires. 
Don't indulge your eyes. Don't feed the thoughts because the, the, the passion, the burn is only going to increase. Make the decision that you will pursue purity. If you are married, table scraps of effort just aren't going to cut it. Real effort must be given into the marriage. You live in a sex-crazed culture. Honoring God is going to require real effort. I plead with you to take it seriously. And as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, let me pose this for some of your prayers. What sins do you need to confess? What sins are in your life right now that you need to repent of? Because repentance begins now. Repentance takes place now, the turning of the heart, and then we go act on it when we leave. What do you need to confess? What do you need to repent of? Let me give us a, a few moments of silence for prayer, and then I'll give some more instructions concerning the Lord's Supper. So I invite you to bow now, and then I'll close this in prayer in a bit. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.